Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a Canadian immigration law podcast. I'm Stephen Murens. Our guest today is Raj Sharma, a Calgary immigration lawyer who can be found on Twitter at at IMM Lawyer Canada, so at M Lawyer Canada. This is Raj's fourth appearance on the podcast. Previous episodes included episode three about marriage fraud, episode 48, which was about responding to procedural fairness letters, and episode 69, which was like today's episode about a whole wide array of topics. Today we are answering listener questions that I canvassed and received through Twitter and email. The questions that we answer include how to address divergent case law when doing judicial reviews, our thoughts on a recent Globe and Mail story, which says that IRCC may waive eligibility requirements to bulk approve temporary resident visas to try to clear its backlog, chat GTP and its possible implications or even replacement of immigration lawyers and or visa officers, processing delays and when to file mandamus, whether the practice of immigration law is getting less fun, and many more questions. Now, once again, if you like the show, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. How do you advise clients on divergent case law? So if you see cases on, I don't know, proof of funds requirements for a study permit, whether the Bangladesh National Party is a terrorist organization, and you see <laughs> 100%, judges- 100%, yes. Yeah, exactly. And you see judges going in different directions. How do you advise clients on this? Well, I guess I can uh, I can refer them to our, our firm's most recent uh, reported federal court decision where- we ran those same, for example, the, the salutary or positive uh, jurisprudence on study permit refusals, uh, Justice uh, Sadra Hashimi or Justice Ahmed or Justice Mahmier, mm -hmm. for example. But uh, and I, I think it was Justice Bell, I believe. And basically, he put in two lengthy paragraphs, notwithstanding uh, able submissions of counsel, which is always... With the able submissions typically this, yeah so this was our most recent associate or most uh you know sarah shibley and so the justice went on and on about and it was, it was shara kali khan is the name of the case but he he commented that the respondent pointed to these cases the applicant pointed to these cases and and then basically he he gave a summary of the federal court which is the federal court one decision does not necessarily bind another mm. um, and yeah. so that's why you had the divergence in the case law before so let's let's jump to citizenship before the two feet on the ground test of 1095 days we had this sort of metaphysical mm. test <laughs> Like, where's your, where's your, where's soul? your spirit? Yeah. Where, yeah. Is your, where does your soul lie? Where's the nexus? <laughs> you had a divergence in the coup case law, for example, of citizenship, which is a centralized mode of existence could qualify for the 1095 days or strict physical presence. So very odd situation that continued for many years with the federal court. So yes, that is very true. Um, and that's a little bit disheartening because lawyers love precedent. And people love certainty. So 
they come to us, they pay us many thousands of dollars and they want some sort of certainty, which is like, what is the percent chances of winning, which I hate, which uh, of course we always get probably three times a day, but you can say that, look, um, I think we're okay. We've, we've got the ILET score. Let's talk about a study permit. We've got the ILET score. We've got proof of finances. We've got a statement of purpose. And then all of a sudden the officer says, well, you know, the statement of purpose is vague or how did, you know, why would someone come to Canada when there's, lo you know, locally available courses at a lower cost? Now, this is very problematic because India has a far more developed, for example, India has a far more developed post-secondary, postgraduate education system than Canada. Anything would be cheaper and available in India. Based on that, we should deny all study permit applications from India. So you have these problematic decisions, you take it up. And then all of a sudden you have standard review. Now, notwithstanding Vavilov, Dunsmuir, Kosa, and all of the cases from before, the antecedent cases, for a lot of judges, it's a smell test. And for a lot of judges, they try to be a little bit more principled about it. And so you may not get leave, even though you've got something that appears to be on all corners with another case. And even if you get leave, you might have some sort of justice that has a certain take on it, which is, and, and we've seen this, that overseas visa offices, given the uh, volume of applications before them, should be given greater margin, okay? And so these are complex, you know, it's it's tough for some lawyers to figure out. It's, it's very tough to advise to a client that, yeah, we think you have a decent chance of winning, um, but then it might go sideways. And then even if you win, it goes back and it might be refused again. And, and we get into yeah. some sort of ping pong match. So these are the vagaries of federal court practice. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's That's just the, the way the cookie crumbles. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that everything you're saying really resonates very much with me. I think uh, for me, there's been a clearly a great wave to to bring in new faces uh, on the bench. Uh, but the result has been that there is quite a divided bench. And there's, a schism. there's a schism. Let's use the Orthodox and Latin church and whatever. There's a schism. Yes, please. Um, and, and while we have so much welcomed the addition of of members of the bench who were once practicing uh, immigration lawyers. I mean, you mentioned Madam Justice Sadr Hashmi, and I, I just, I can't think of any major issue that is being litigated ad nauseum um, at federal court right now, where there aren't two pretty divergent lines of, of jurisprudence developing. And, and I'm this talking is, about- This is why I welcome our AI overlords. I believe that question. <laughs> this is why I welcome our AI. Well, it depends who's programming them, uh, Raj. Are we going to go uh, which side of the schism are they going to be programming? Uh, well, no, be no. Programming I'm, I'm, I'm thinking visa offices. So you have mm -hmm. such you have such discretion on a TRV uh, application that honestly, uh, a little bit of AI intervention might be good because you are now seeing. For example, uh, I, I don't know how many GRs I've done of truck drivers being refused no, in the Gulf states mm -hmm. from massive trucking companies in Canada. And we have uh, we have divergence in terms of this language is not good enough. Well, it's good enough for PR, but mm -hmm. it's apparently not good enough for work. Program. Okay, let's deal with that. Oh, you know what? Um, 
similarly for we cooks. We, for... we don't think we don't think you've been driving a Qatar for 15 years, but you know what? You're not you're unfamiliar with the weather, trade, and climate of Canada. Borderline well, borderline racist, and based on that reasoning. I guess we're only going to get in, truckers in 2021 yeah. on that, like that weather point. I remember in 2021, I think November, there were two federal court decisions released the same day, both involving applicants named Singh, where one judge said it's reasonable for a visa officer to determine essentially that someone who knows how to drive in a desert in a small country won't know how to drive in a bigger country that's a cold country. And the other judge ruling that it's unreasonable for the visa officer to uh, make that determination. Well, it, it almost harkens back to the guy that we've got on the $50 bill who said that, uh, you know, Punjabis or Indians are, are unsuited for the climate in Canada. So mm. it, it's it, that's you guys are going to love King this Charles. <laughs> I, we don't, we don't have, I don't believe that 50 <laughs> King Charles is on a dollar bill yet. <laughs> well, you guys are going to love McKenzie this, but I just King. got I got one of those refusals on a work permit extension for a cook that insufficient language skills, <laughs> having been on an LMIA based work permit and now being told insufficient language skills to maintain the position. So, I mean, again, I, I think that I mean, there's there's a lot of ambiguity on that, on the question even of of costs. I think that there has become a divergence on the question of legitimate expectations. There's become a divergence on, you know, um, you know, so I, I think that there 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 are many of these things. And so you talked, Raj, about, you know, that the 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 dreaded question about what is the percentage of chance? Um, you hate that question. I've kind of warmed to it over the years. And I'm just kind of like, I feel like I'm being paid for my gut instinct and uh, to give my gut instinct. And I say to people, you know, like there's no science behind my giving you a percentage as to what is the likelihood of approval or refusal. I'm just telling you, here's my knee jerk reaction based on what I've seen and knowing that there's like no scientific precision to this because there is this schism and we don't know who who's going to end up deciding the application, but for what it's worth. You also don't know which DOJ lawyer will be assigned. No. But look, um, I mean, there's multiple avenues where different personalities can uh, impact the outcome of a judicial review. We just the, tell clients like a lot can depend on who the judge is. Yeah, for sure. The, the, the problem with judicial review and, and, and I've. Justice needs to be obtained at the first instance. For sure. And judicial review is an exogenous ex post facto after the fact forensic exercise which attempts to determine whether the the relationship or that decision is can be upheld or not now judicial review for an inside canada decision from a tribunal such as the irb any of the tribunals of the irb is a far different beast than judicial review of a decision made with respect to a foreign national who had either no expectation to come to Canada or very little expectation to remain in Canada. So even within judicial review or immigration litigation, one must make this sort of under understand how these things work and how these things are looked at by, uh, by a judge or a justice. And so it's, it's, 
and now, of course, practicing for 20 years and 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 being at the federal court many times, I, I do have this sort of feeling of not disengagement, but I, I'm not disillusionment either. I don't want to give that impression, but, you know, judicial review is not really about justice. Judicial, mm. judicial review is not really about getting things right. Judicial review is you know, getting another crack at it. And then it depends on the visa office. You know, many times I've, I've now gone, I believe maybe this is the record. I'm not sure. I've gone three or four times to federal court um, and succeeding every time on a refused visitor visa application. And the visa office comes back with a refusal every other time. So it it gets a little bit dispiriting at yeah, times. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think that it's, um, it's sort of like a de minimis exercise. And I think that... Um, that that there is a larger kind of rule of law issue uh and you know we've talked about this numerous times i feel like it's becoming an increasing issue about dealing with the systemic issues and i have become disillusioned i will not uh pull my punches on that because i no longer feel like the federal court is um an effective way of trying to approach some of those yeah, more and, systemic issues. And, and it shouldn't be. I mean, if we were to go back to like Harry Arthur's and, and, you know, all, if you go back into judicial, like it is not, we decided to take certain decisions out of the hands of the judiciary and create this sort of administrative regime so that they can deal with decision-making on this level of tens of thousands of decisions, right? So, and then the courts hold a supervisory function. Now, too little judicial review means that executive, the officers run amok. Too yeah. much judicial review means that the whole system gets plugged, uh, is, is plugged up. So judicial review, I think, should be almost nearly, again, and we'll get into this on the mandamus questions as well. There's a spectrum. Judicial review probably on a PR applications or citizenship, again, or refugee or protection or admissibility, inadmissibility, is again a far different beast or misrepresentation, sure. far different beast than uh, you know, uh, work permit refusal or a visitor visa refusal or you know, a stu- study permit refusal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, just before, like, in the we go on to the next question, I do want to plug that in March, um, Sean Rehag is going to be on the podcast to discuss his latest paper on. Uh, how who is deciding can often matter in the outcome. He just published a paper for um, the Center of Refugee Studies at York University called Luck of the Jaw 3, using AI to examine decision-making and federal court stays of removal. And he found that, or the AI found, I guess, that there is a big divergence uh, in the likelihood of a stay of removal being granted, depending on who the judge is. You you needed chat, GBT, you needed AI to figure this out, like... Pick up the phone, call, call any one of us. And yeah, I, I know. Yeah. Justice Emmett grants more stays than Justice yeah. uh, Anise. <laughs> wow. Yeah. By, a, by a significant margin. Huh. Yeah, there you go. But I mean, I think um I think that you know, one of the 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 issues that we've been grappling with is the idea, if not judicial review, then what is the venue to try and adi- try and address these systemic issues um, that are issues of discrimination, um, issues of you know um, 
you know, lack of fair uh, examination of the merits of an application at the visa office. And I think that, you know, you you weren't uh, able to join us for our the year in review, but that was a recurring theme that came up there is that we have these issues. And I think that the, we haven't seen the full pendulum swing yet. Steve and I were commenting about how this was the first year in my practice that I've seen that we had to go into five digit file numbers for the federal court because there is a lot of grievance with the way that the visa offices are dealing with um, with visa office, with, with, with application refusals, but uh, we just don't have a satisfactory way of redress, uh, method of redress. Uh, and so I think that People are still flocking to the federal courts as a as a as an avenue to try and redress that. And I agree with what you're saying, Raj, that it isn't the the right way of going about it. But I think that we just don't have an alternative. And we did talk about like case managed litigation um, in previous podcasts, and you know some some thoughtful ideas about how that might work. But um, anyways, I just put that out there. Now, one of the ways, moving to the next question, of resolving. Systemic issues might just be to waive requirements. So I don't know if you both saw that. Um, that's the... not that's not a way to systemically <laughs> deal to with fix... anything. That that is surrender. Yeah. <laughs> please, so for please, those please. who uh, for for those who don't know the story, the Globe and Mail uh, apparently obtained a memorandum of argument, um, and it was through, from what I understand. Uh, the journalist source at IRCC. It wasn't through an Access to Information Act request or anything, which says that there's a huge backlog of temporary residence applications. I think it exceeds 1 million. And on the temporary resident visa side, the government is considering for about 400,000 temporary resident visa applications in the backlog to just waive the requirement that applicants show that they will leave Canada by the end of the authorized stay. A um, couple other things to note about the memo, apparently there were not gonna be plans to communicate this, that this was happening. It was just uh, people would notice all of a sudden maybe that there were a lot of approvals coming really quick and that it would eventually come out in ATIP. So one of the questions that uh, I got from a few people was, what do you think about this? I think it's insane. I think it's insane. I think it's pie in the sky. I think that there's going to be significant downstream effects to this. Um, I can I can only imagine the reaction by overseas visa officers who have been tasked with determining whether this individual meets the requirements of the act and, and regulations. And now you're going to say just waive them. Hmm. Um, so I... <laughs> Look, they tried this with that spousal open work permit not too long ago, and they said, hey, they should relax up on 179B, and that didn't seem to have yeah, any significant uh... effects. So, um, I so think tell me, though, what's, what is it, what are you, what's your fear? What do you see as the worst case scenario here, Raj? You suddenly approve 400,000 people to come here on a visitor visa, and yeah. they pass in Canada, and a significant number of them perhaps don't want to leave. You're you're going to stress the system. You're going to have LMI and work permits under that. Uh, obviously, it's not even a new public policy anymore. So you let four hundred thousand individuals in. You are going to you're going to impact other aspects of the system, whether it's the work permit regime, whether it's the refugee 
system, uh, you know, enforcement. Yeah. Uh, they estimate uh, in the memo that it will lead to 8,600 refugee claims. That's that's basically a third more than what they got right now per year. I mean, um, so every every decision in immigration has corollary or secondary or tertiary uh, impacts. And 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 again, thinking like as a visa officer, I can only imagine the reaction of these visa officers because you know some of these individuals that are trying to enter Canada uh, have uh, ulterior motives not just overstay not just getting working hard and 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 fulfilling the canadian dream i mean there are other nefarious actors out there as well so i'm not and the message that you're sending you kind of hinted at an amnesty or waiver in september october now you're hinting at you know a whole stream waiver of a requirement um and so what do you do that are you setting the stage for an amnesty oh, oh we now have four hundred thousand plus the five hundred thousand. i guess we have to do an amnesty so it's a very odd, uh, it sends a strange messages. And I think that there's going to be seen and unseen consequences. Yeah. The fact that it leaked, I think, is actually also going to lead to more applications. I don't know yeah. if when they do this, they're going to have a cutoff date for applications received before a certain date. For but sure. I know uh, I've been contacted by a few yep. individuals and representatives who are just throwing applications in or planning on throwing applications in now, hoping that it'll be bulk approved. And on the judicial review side, I've been contacted saying, "Hey, can we get a quick consent? We want, uh, we want our name, we want our application back in the uh, in processing for when the bulk approvals start." So it's definitely created a buzz. Leak, if anything else, has created a bit of a bit of a buzz that could yeah. lead to more of those downstream consequences. Especially yeah, you know. because there's been talk also about the the work permit for dependent like working age dependents at the end of january am i right so this might also kind of um tie in timing wise as well but well, so what is the solution to this backlog well this, yeah. uh, the solution going forward is very clear charge more money for trvs that have some sort of internal review mechanism at, in place right like the visitor visa applicant charge more or give yeah. that option, like, okay, here's what it is for a visitor visa application for whatever decision, charge more money and... and like and a substantive work. appeal on the merits, um, right. Or just something to, like, I also don't know how many people have multiple TRVs. Like, of this backlog, how many are the applications that were filed before September 2021 when they told people to all just reapply? Um, I don't yeah. know, but... But also, I mean, you re you um, talked about this during our last podcast, Steve, is the idea of how much of the backlog is created by the logistics and the mechanics around issuing the counterfoils. And mm -hmm. if we can issue documents electronically, in theory, like with the um, with the ETA, why can't we do a counterfoilless TRV approval uh, to just take away some of the work of issuing the TRV to visa requiring uh, nationals. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts there. The, the airlines, for example, have to determine whether this is legitimate or not. And if it's illegitimate, the airlines get charged fees for this. So you can't, again, those contrafoils are there for a reason. Um, yes, they have yeah. been doing it though with the ETA. So uh, again- are, That's okay. ETA countries about 50, the ETAs, we've we've taken a risk that a guy from Germany is not going to now do something weird in Canada, right? So, uh, 
you know, there's there's a reason why those counterfoils are there. Yeah, I do think I, I, I mean, I haven't seen the justification or the discussion on it. I, I, I'd love to see a pilot. I guess they're doing it now with Ukraine on waiving the uh, the counterfoil yeah. requirement because well, that that makes sense. I feel like if it, like the airlines could control with some sort of combo of the biometrics and like um, just the the number to board who gets on, who doesn't. I don't know how much that would go towards clearing this backlog. Mm. Um, I mean, the other one, and this can actually lead into the next question, will chat GTP uh, replace either immigration lawyers or visa officers? And Raj, you were joking earlier that for diver, or maybe you're serious, that divergent decisions, AI could be part of the solution. Uh, can I chat GTP clear out um, backlogs? Or or replace immigration lawyers. Look again, if we're talking about, if we're talking about disillusionment, then you know at a certain point, I think I would prefer some sort of transparent AI that has some you know rubric that uh, we can all sort of uh, understand and apply. I think I'd rather have an AI a decision maker for a TRV out of New Delhi. I, I I think I'm at that point right now because the you have to have some consistency, and we do not see consistency yeah. out of making out of certain visa offices yeah um i played around with chat gpt a little bit honestly it spit out stuff that you know better submissions better written submissions than i've seen from immigration lawyers across this country consultants and some of my students at uh you know university of calgary and, and queens i think that for now i think it might be a, a nice additional tool for example i was playing around with it in terms of humanitarian and compassion submissions for for example, as well. So I think it could be a, it could be a good tool in the hands of uh, a good lawyer. I think it could uh, make certain lawyers uh, submissions uh, readable and uh, legible and uh, understandable. So in terms of these offices, it, it just depends on it's a tool. It just depends on how you use this tool. But uh, it could be a tool for good. It could be a tool for it, it may not be good. It, you know, if 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 you program a chat GBT out of the let's say cynical officers out of certain visa offices maybe you're going to get a cynical chat mm -hmm. gpt yeah i think even just the fact like yeah the quality of writing that it produces is really high it has big limitations i don't know why it's limited in the data that it can review online to 2021 and it doesn't have 2022 data i assume that will get fixed but in terms of the quality of writing it is extremely good. Have you played around with it, uh, Deanna? No, I'm scared. <laughs> oh, I think I've sent you some. Uh, yeah, you have. Every time it gives of, me uh, this like freaky. It's somewhere around yeah. the grade 12, a decent grade 12 student, na native speaking grade 12 student, somewhere around there. It's, it's good. Yeah, I mean, I understand I can sidle. I, I, can, I can come to terms with the idea of sidling up to it as an effective tool and helping to produce things that end up getting looked over by a lawyer just to help facilitate a more efficient practice. Um, yeah, I, I mean, again, I know I'm going to have to go there, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, I, I'm just uh, I'm holding out for the time being. I think it has the potential to save. I don't think it will replace representatives or visa officers. Mm. Um, although the department, we talked about this, uh, at the department in their HR plans, plans on reducing its decision maker headcount 
while increasing output, which to me suggests that it act, that the department might be planning on using chat GTP or other AI apps to reduce headcount. I think that it can definitely increase productivity for representatives and look, people look, at I government. Mean, you know, a chat, a decent chat bot, you know, if the, if IRCC puts up a decent chat bot or tool, you can have individuals simply apply for a visitor visa without the need of a consultant or lawyer. Uh, that, that I can see happening. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, obviously you shouldn't be a one trick pony. You shouldn't have an entire practice yeah. built around TRV applications perhaps, because yeah. those are things that, you know, there's uh, there's companies out there that uh, assist uh, international students. Yeah, I mean, and from a from a access to justice perspective, it should not be necessary to require a, a lawyer to make a TRV application. That should need, not have happened, you right? You don't need a you don't need a law degree to do a visa visa application <laughs> or a, a work permit or a study permit. I mean, as long as everything is clear and transparent. But yeah, I I think that it will. Certainly those lower end applications, a citizenship application, again, these are things that machines can do at this point. Yeah. And I think just a form. I welcome Sorry. that component. Like if somebody who is a non-native speaker of English is going to be able to put in the content and have a decent, like a decent presentation of their application, I would welcome that. And similarly, if rather than the garbled reasons that we get out of the visa office, we had something that was properly articulated coming from the actual intention of the officer, and then we had it properly explained in reasons that were articulated by ChatGPT, so we had something to go with. Great, I welcome both of those things. Um, you know, I'm not really worried that we're going to be put out of work. That's not something that concerns me. Yeah. No, the um, I actually have the uh, the stats through ATIP. I just haven't tweeted them or published. I don't. Them. I, I don't want. I don't. Sorry, Diana. I don't want more articulate reasons out of visa office. <laughs> <laughs> you want the rubbish like, ones that we get look, right now. Look, the shittier the decision, the easier. Yeah, it's not, I right? it, yeah. Like I don't want articulate Shakespearean or Elizabethan or Victorian English. And, and that's for you and your oral submissions. I get uh, it. I feel like we're going to head that way, though. Like, I think I it is moving. I need something deficient, right? I need, yeah. And, yeah. and I think and it is moving to where AI will review the application, spit out a refusal or an approval, and the visa officer's role will just be to like almost provide review and you know theoretical review of it and second guess maybe correct well, decisions, things like that. But I think it will reach that stage. Yeah. You know, different. Remember one thing, and and maybe this is a question that's coming up a little bit later about visa processing times in different regions. Each visa office or each region has different challenges than other visa offices, and so you'll a visa office in a particular region, and and let's say that the greater the incentive to come to Canada, the greater the let's say the application of discretion by a visa officer. So. If you have someone from India or Pakistan or whatever else, where you will have a marriages of convenience as a, as a significant issue or fraudulent documents like banking or what have you, you are going to see greater intervention and, and, and insight. You're, you're simply not going to have that. If someone from Japan gets married and there's a spousal sponsorship for a Japanese national, you are not going to see an officer delve or dig. And so all of these things are made within the context of which visa office is it? Show me the mm -hmm. visa office and I'll give you the result almost, right? It's almost like determinism, which is 
you know, like uh, very sometimes depressing. Uh, well, you know, like how much of our judicial review practice is based on, oh, there was a document that wasn't considered. I could totally see AI just reviewing and chat GPT spitting out, I have considered and then just listing all the documents. And then the visa officer will write whatever conclusion they have. But the fact that the, the AI is able to list all the documents, like think about how that would impact probably most of our uh, judicial reviews, or at least a significant chunk. Yeah, the Sepeda Guterres uh, argument, yeah. Yeah. Um, why are there processing delays still in 2023? It's, it's, it's about... We've got a bunch of variations uh, of this Yeah, there's, there's variations. So number one is that, you know, where you have a greater push-pull factor towards immigration, you're going to see greater scrutiny. Greater scrutiny means more time. Um, different visa officers are, you know, obviously we don't have visa officers in Moscow right now processing anything. So, you know, you're going to have a situation where Delhi, for example, is the largest visa processing center outside of Canada. So different resources have greater, different offices have greater resources and human resources at play. And then of course, different visa offices have different requirements. So. We have document fraud in, in one particular region, which means that we need greater verification and intervention by an officer. So some of that is going to be that, um, you know, we for whatever reason, we some regions are understaffed. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Nigeria, for whatever reason, being the sort of leading country in Africa has insufficient resources. Mm -hmm. yeah. Might as well combine this with that question. Why is pro why are processing times in West Africa so slow? I think mm. I think insufficient processing. We're we're ignoring Nigeria. I think yeah, we need sure. way more. This educated population. It's a Commonwealth country. It's very very similar to India. If you look at India and Nigeria and post-colonial history, you've got a diverse multicultural uh, country. You got Muslims and Christians and and what have you. And so uh, we got to pay more attention to Nigeria. I don't understand why we don't have a dedicated uh, visa office over there. Mm. Do you think it just comes down to, I mean, some people listening are going to be screaming, oh, it's racism. But do you think it's just not reallocating with the times? Do you think it's like, as you said, it's resembling India in terms of country profile, at least? It's, you know, it's not necessarily, you remember, it's uh, Hanlon's razor, never ascribed to malice. That's what's explained <laughs> by incompetence. I mean, don't jump to racism right off the bat. India is the largest visa off office outside of Canada. We have no problems, fun, you know, providing providing resources to uh, handle Indian nationals and, and applicants. So, you know, I don't know. I don't think it's security. I, that, there's a reason why London is handling Pakistan PR and, and right. And that's a different matter. That's a security yeah. issue. Um, I don't know whether there's a security issue out there. I don't know whether there's other concerns out there, but Nigeria must be recognized as this sort of, uh, it's a great source country. We've got these educated yeah. population that speaks English that has, you know, I, you know, these, th this is uh this is a fantastic source country. We got to pay attention to Nigeria. Yeah. I also think in terms of the, uh, uh, you know, Hanlon's razor is that there, there's, there's, there are issues in terms of even the systems and the processes, like the portals are problematic, you know, the, the flow of information is problematic. And so I think uh, we talked a little bit about these, these tools and 
the amount of effort that is required to make them work effectively. Like even you want to request a document from an applicant and then it comes through a web form and then it takes however many weeks for it to be sent and um, put into the right hands. You know, like the systems I think are not working effectively. Uh, and we see that even just in the number of situations that I've handled where a document is requested, you're told to upload it to the portal, the portal has no upload slot. So you send it by web form, the web form, the application is refused on the basis that it was not provided when in fact it was provided three times. Like there's all sorts of stuff like that as well, where the, the machinery in the background is not working effectively, but the number, the amount of resources that are required to make these fixes are large. They're not small. They're like, they're big, they're big issues. And so um, so the web form that... system, yeah, we talked about that last week. The web form system where you have to submit a web form versus an automatic ability to just upload documents to your application. Mm -hmm. And, there's, and there's not one web little, form, uh... there's two or three. There's the visa office specific one. And, you know, yeah. like there's a general one and nobody knows which one to use. And, you know, like it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a gong show, you know? And so I think that there is a certain amount of that, that, um, that's causing difficulties. Um, um, and even just because there's a delay, then they send a communication and the person doesn't receive it. And, uh, you know, so um, I think that uh, that can that contributes to the delays. And I don't know to what extent, because, of course, we're not privy to all of this information, but I think that it has to be counted in there as well. When uh, when should someone file mandamus? So I've heard just uh, as like in speaking with lawyers, I've heard everything from not when people should, but what people's practice seems to be to if the processing time has exceeded stated processing by 2x, if it's even a day over or even any time, what's the downside? Um, look, I think... <clears throat> oh, and for those just a but mandamus is an application to the federal court to compel IRCC to, to do something, but in the visa context, it's usually to conclude processing. Um, I, my philosophy is that mandamus and deciding mandamus and when to file or when to initiate a trigger is more of an art than a science. And so what I'll, I'll give you my little algorithm. My algorithm is that the less discretion plays a role in the underlying application, the more likely it is that you should pull the trigger. So on that spectrum, when do you pull the trigger? Well, on a citizenship application, I will pull that trigger of mandamus quite quickly. Um, on a PR application where everything's met, it's inside Canada, like it's people need to move on with their lives and there's definite benefits to getting that PR sooner rather than later, I will pull that mandamus uh, trigger quickly. You pull a mandamus on a visitor visa application or an extension, you are asking for a refusal because that officer is going to be like, you want a decision? No problem. Here's mm -hmm. a no and uh, deal with the exogenous after the fact, ex post facto federal court system, right? So, you know, it, it depends on a visitor visa or visitor extension or work permit inside can I'm a lot nicer in my de demand. Interesting. Um, so I think it's, you have to understand the nature of the application before you. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and I don't know, I've been doing mandamus for a long time. I've taken a mandamus matter to the federal court of appeal. It, it's something that, it's a very helpful tool in the right, on the right application at the right time, mm. but it's certainly not some sort of blanket uh, cure-all. 
Yeah, I guess that's that a very kind interesting of, um, perspective. So in terms of this pulling the trigger, would you ever pull it if the uh, application hadn't exceeded stated processing times? Or can you think of scenarios where you would? Because this seems to be don't something worry, that at least I'm hearing about. Don't worry so much about stated processing times is, is my perspective on this. None of my mandamus applications have really turned on whatever the nonsense website says is the, what is the process now? When they submitted it, is it, is it historical? Is it current? Like, no, no, no. When no. it's been sent back for redetermination. Yeah, it, it has to be, it has to be in the circumstances of Vaziri, Kanil, it's unreasonable in the circumstances. The stated processing times is one factor. Hmm. Okay. Now, the other thing people need to understand is that mandamus, and I've said this before, mandamus is like chopping down a tree, tipping over a vending machine, or breaking up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Okay? You may have to do it more than once. You do a demand, there might be some movement. Yeah, right? Okay, fine. Discontinue. Don't do it. Do you demand? No movement. ALGR? Okay, some movement. Now, technically, ovale, just as, you know, like, we know that it doesn't count. Whatever happens after ALGR is not counted. Okay, because otherwise you just take one stupid step and, and yeah. sort of stymie this. But you may, I'm doing mandamus for the fifth time for one client. <laughs> and, you know, like, it's just one of those things. So again, it, it depends on the particular application on a, on a citizenship matter. Pull it, what does it matter? There's no harm, hmm. right? I mean, if he's eligible, he's eligible. So like, you know, so it, it's it's contextual, but you know, I, I don't, processing times isn't that foremost in my mind. It, it, I look at the type of the application. I got a single guy from Yemen who's a PR. He hasn't left Canada. I need citizenship for this guy so he can go potentially work abroad or work for a better, you know, oil and gas company. Or, you know, it depends on the needs of the particular client. Yeah, I, I like that. That's I need a travel a document. My dad is my dad is really sick. I really need citizenship. The travel document is taking eleven months to get. Like, all right, yeah. I'll, I'll 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 pull that demand fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, so it it all it all depends on the needs of the client. And you know what? Don't some clients again? Well, now that everyone knows about mandamus, so this little secret non secret is out. Everyone's been asking about mandamus, but many times I tell people, I'm like, you know what? It's not right now. Come talk yeah. to me in three months. Come talk to me in six months. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great answer. So I met one individual who says that a lawyer told them there's no point in doing web form inquiries when you could just do mandamus. Huh? That person, I guess Depends. that person's Depends. take is why ever ask for a status update when you can throw in mandamus? Well, look, it depends. If you've done 15 web form applications, no one's getting back to you. I, I, you know what? I'm not a huge fan of MP inquiries. I am not a, fan, a great fan of web. If they're ignoring you, I mean, sometimes you have to get yeah, there. Yeah. And then one way of getting their attention is certainly a mandamus application. Mm -hmm. I'm also very cautious about um, my own reputation in terms of like being the uh, you know, the lawyer that cries wolf every single time that something goes beyond the processing delay and I just want something to move. Um, and so, um, you know, what Raj is saying about having looked at all the facts of the case and said, this is one that is really egregious. It's not just simply that I'm paying attention to that status tracker on the, on the website yeah. and saying now it's too long. 
Um, no, you know, I'm I the same. That... I'd say I'm pretty cautious on it, mainly yeah. for that reputation. Uh... Yeah. Look, I don't know about my reputation with CBSA or IRCC. I think that ship has sailed. All right. I... <laughs> oh no, they won't. I'm talking federal court or yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, I don't. I don't worry about that. They know that I will. I will safeguard my clients' interests, and yeah, and if they can't respect that, they can't respect it. I'm not losing any sleep about it, but. I, I do it when it's in the client's interest to do so. And I don't really think about anything beyond that. But no, you but think I guess that like it's the not example a vexatious that litigation. Like, you feel yeah, like it's yeah, meritorious. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, right? not, that's, that's it. Not, that's that's not, like, it. Like, I've started to hear grumblings of, you know, yeah. express entry application yeah. goes in. One week later, someone's filing mandamus. Yeah. Look, I mean, look, that, that, that being said, again, all these people pulling the trigger on mandamus too soon have never probably argued a mandamus application in front of a judge. Right. Right. Yeah, so they're pulling sure. it too soon. They're using it as, as a collateral attack to, and that's not in the client's interest either. No, exactly. So that's and all not, I'm getting at. And it's not in our systems. Uh, it's not in our judicial systems. We're still officers of the court. We can't plug up. For sure. With yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's all. No, and I am concerned that there's uh, some information or misinformation spreading of like, oh, just do mandamus with job. What's yeah, yeah. This is this happens all the time. They're like, oh yeah, we can do this now, or we can do that now, and and you know, I've I've been hired by consultants, other lawyers, and again, they think judicial review is like an appeal, and it's not. And and then you're like, look, I need to review everything, and fifty percent of the time, I'm like, look. Probably there's no nope. reasonable decision, right? Or yeah. it's not warranted at this time. But yeah, Davis is not a magical, it's not a magical wand. It's not, it's nothing like that. You really have to understand and steep yourself in the client's circumstances and the overall context and then go from there. Yeah, and, and whether the legal test Mand- has been met. With Mandamus, be careful what you wish for. You want an interview, you'll yeah. interview, you know, like <laughs> many things emerge because Mandamus is just simple thing i need i need movement i need substantive movement or decision or finalization yeah definitely um we've talked about this on the podcast why are spouses or citizens of permanent residents not eligible for work permits or open work permits while the spouses of foreign Uh, workers in canada are i mean we look these are apples and oranges why and well look on an open work permit, you might have a foreign national that's working as some oil and gas executive or what have you. He might be married for 10 or 15 years. He might have a couple of kids and his, you know, his wife is going to get an open work permit and he's going to be living and working here. On a PR or citizen, that marriage might be one month old. There's no determination, no nothing about bona fides that have, has been established. So these are, these are, Two separate things. They look alike, but they're quite different in their overall policy. You know, why do why do foreign nationals in Canada are not that are working here are not subject to medical excessive demand, blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, this guy's economic class is applying for a PR and his autistic or daughter or what have you uh does. These these are two separate things. They look alike. It's like birds and bir- uh, it's like birds and bats both can fly, but they're still two different. Species. Yeah, but uh, 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 an oil and gas executive. Just one second. You cannot treat someone who just got married in an arranged marriage in India and you expect that person, that spouse to get an open work permit before a visa office has determined bona fides? Okay, but if they were married to a foreign national who came on a skilled work permit, they would be able to. 
Yeah, they theoretically can. They would have to, sh they would apply and they would show the bona fides as well. So right? they can still do that with yeah. respect to a, the spouse of a Canadian. It's, I mean, I understand what you're saying about they need to do a bona fides assessment, but that doesn't mean that they should not be eligible to apply for a work permit. Uh, look, I'm with you. They should be eligible to apply for yeah. work Thank permit. You. They should be eligible to apply for a TRV. I, I'm I'm with you. What I'm saying yeah. is that just by just saying black and white, how come this, how come that? Well, there's some policy considerations here. They are a little bit different. So, you know, I think people get, again, they get all, especially immigrants, like, it's really odd because you'll have immigrants saying, well, how come it's taking so long for my wife to get here? And all these Ukrainians or Syria, pick pick the nationality. Yeah, of the no, I get it. And they're coming here and they get to work. And so I, I get it, but you know, you know, immigration, but this is an area where immigration can improve. But remember, they again they tried to waive the 179B requirements for the uh visitor visa for uh spouses, the PR yeah. to get and it never worked. You know, I think I think they're going to do it this year. I do think an interesting unintended consequence, like we've seen in India, this huge uptake in misrep findings where a open spousal work permit for a student or a worker is refused on genuineness and they throw on the misrepresentation. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure, um, and either of you can correct me if I'm wrong, that like, the right to appeal to the immigration appeal division is based on a permanent resident visa application. So if a Canadian is, let's say someone overseas applies for their open spousal work permit because they have a PR application in process and it's refused for misrep, there wouldn't be a right to the uh, appeal division. Like there could actually be a huge negative unintended there's, there's consequence. No, there's no right. There's no right to appeal to the IED. Yeah. So there could be like, if they do introduce this ability to uh for outland uh spouses to do open work permits um I've done, there could actually be an interesting flurry of misrep cases i've, I've done a lot that don't of, have appeal rights i've done a lot of this and in fact i i lost in front of justice Ahmed on something like this so this is a big problem you do an open work permit application um your wife is here she's about to apply for pr you get a five-year ban mm-hmm that five-year inadmissibility ban will affect her PR application as well. Right. Because okay. you need to do an arc then, even if the... Yeah. Well, correct. Very good. Yeah, exactly. You need an arc. Now, the one of the issues is that if it was a PR application, let's say it's a spousal sponsorship, and there's a misrep where they say, I'm not convinced that your marriage is genuine, that's not a Section 40 finding. That's just a Regulation 4, Sub 1. And so you get a right of appeal to the ID. What right. these guys are saying is that I'm not satisfied that your marriage is genuine under Regulation 4, and that could make uh, me commit an error under the Administration right. Act under Section 40. So they've conflated right. to 4 and Section 40. And right. so we ran this several times, and luckily some of the times we were able to get a consent, but Justice Emma's like, yeah, that's reasonable. That's Justice yeah. Emmett. Yeah, there's the similar uh, that split in the jurisprudence. It seems That's Justice on it. Emmett. So I mean, it's like I, I had a good draw. They also don't wow. provide the so opportunity for so, an arc. So, like so I've, I've seen the PR refused without uh, giving the opportunity for an and, arc. And look, I I, I want to say this as well. When we talk about you know work permits and things like that, I frequently tell, particularly Indian nationals, they're like, oh, I want to apply for my husband's open work permit. I'm like, listen. You do that, and Delhi, you know, he's tried three times before. Delhi might shut him down. 
or you got married after the study permit was issued, apply for PR, forget about the open work permit. Because what if we go down this misrep route and then I've got to untangle all of this? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. give the same uh, advice. I always tell people to uh, get the PR application in if they're eligible to avoid any like any possible misrep issue down the road. Can you give us the citation for that that decision uh, before Emmett? I'm sure we could figure it out, but uh, just we can add it to the case note to the to the notes for this session because that's one to watch out for for sure. Yeah, it's it, look. I mean, part of it was my idiot spouse is like, you know, what does your wife like to do? And and he's like, she likes to go out and eat ice cream, and <laughs> really that ended up being. Uh, a big sticking point right so i don't know if i want to give that citation to that, mm. <laughs> that we case. can find it <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's plenty of other misrep it, it'll take you some time yeah but you got to be careful it, de it depends on the visa office yeah but that is really troubling though it sort of enlarges the scope of that exercise so so much and it Delhi, does seem Delhi, to yeah. It, yeah. Circum it circumvents the entire appeal process pretty effectively. Delhi will find a misrep like I behind know. every leaf tree and bush. Like you got to be very, very careful. Well, yeah. I, and I've shared with you, Raj, that, uh, and I've blogged about it. It's a policy. At least in yeah. 2018, it was a policy. Well, and, and, in fact, I believe I used those materials in uh, some of my uh, JRs <laughs> to show that it's a policy to, to, prevent multiple applications not you know it's 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 almost like it, they're punishing uh mm -hmm. these applicants well they're sending a message to the community yeah. to use their That's, words but, and sending a message to which community it's it's even in india they're sending a message to the punjabis not to the not necessarily to the gujaratis or the guys from the up or or right these other states it's it's a message to the punjabis mm -hmm. Um, you guys made made some comments about 1179D, I think, unless I was missing what you were talking about. 1179, you said that they're they try do this. I, I no, just missed what that, you guys were that, referring that's to. That's 179. Uh, oh, 179. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're talking about um the requirement, the overstay requirement. Like tell me what you're referring to exactly, because I'm not sure I'm following. Applicants need to uh demonstrate that they'll their leave intention to leave at the end of the period authorized for their stay okay um and that's with respect to spouses when they have is that what you mean they yeah they tried that in the past when people were clamoring that there's a massive delay at least give our spouses visitor visas to Canada. okay isn't that just like the doctrine of dual intent i don't get it no so they posted there was a big push um from the uh the house of commons committee on making it easier for spouses with PR applications and process to get TRVs. Uh -huh. So I can't remember if it was 2020 or 2021 where the department added this guidance on their website on how to okay. assess these. I actually think it made it stricter. Yeah. Uh, like, which oh, wasn't how it was presented, but I was like, whoa, yeah. these factors are tougher than I feel like the, I see. there weren't really any factors before. Now there's all these additional like tests. Yeah. I just feel like that should never be an issue anyways. Uh, anyways, that, that's a, a whole other conversation, but I, at least I know where you're. Well, I mean, about. the argument, the argument is this, is that why would this person overstay their exactly. visa when they have a PR application in process? Yeah, exactly. So that's why 179B should be diminished importance. Totally. When you have an underlying PR or a sponsorship.
this is one of those things when they make a policy to explain what's already the law. <laughs> well, in the stats, like I've tweeted the stats, the spousal sponsorship approval rate is something like 91%. The TRV yeah. approval rate for where applications are in process is around 40 to 50%. Mm -hmm. So like you'd, you'd at least think they could try to bring that TRV approval rate to somewhat mimic what the P, the ultimate PR application is. Cause otherwise they're just, you know, theoretically delaying unnecessarily 40%. Well, this is sort of uh, similar, but, but kind of still different, which is that I hear, and you might um, get this even, even more Raj is that, you know, people being advised that the principal applicant is going to apply for their temporary resident document through a visa office in India. They're being told don't apply for your family at the same time, because that's going to make it harder. And so the principal applicant then gets their permit and now they try and apply for their dependents and they all get refused. And so um, to me, it doesn't make sense why it should, because I would never advise them to apply separately. You know, it seems to me like, you know, you approve the whole family, but whatever. Once the one person, the principal, the lead applicant is work permit authorized to then do a fulsome assessment on the other family members in a way that's different than had they applied all together to be is a little bit. Uh, well, there might be some reason you might when you apply for the work permit for the let's say the let's say the worker, you might want to show that he's going to leave. He's going to comply with Regulation 179 yeah. because he's got ties back home once right. he's here and he's working then you apply for the usually the wife and the kids to say that look you know she's eligible for the open work permit again again under the regs and the and the act so um i can see this i can see why that would be done and i i believe i've done that myself but yeah i, I typically do like to touch a file once right yeah One and, exactly uh, yeah. i just what i'm seeing is the applications that were advanced didn't make any arguments about ties i mean maybe they listed them as being dependents that stayed and they were hoping that those those um those ties would be imputed to them oh, but can I, can I i just thought about something can i chat about you guys about something yeah please so yeah, we, go for chatted, it. we chatted last year right uh, about this time yeah. Yeah. We talked about Bhavna Muhammad, which was the first reported decision for 2021. Yeah, yeah. Uh, HNC with COVID. HNC with COVID, frontline worker, long time term care facility worker, handling dead bodies, dealing with families behind screens, whatever have you. Yeah. Federal court, very Shakespearean, whatever yes, yes. assignment, the moral debt owed to, right? Yeah. yeah. On the basis of that decision, I was able to win another IED because at that time, Deanna said, don't underestimate this Raj, because I was, I was a little bit, you know, I was just like, I don't know if this is going to be a big deal or not. Deanna's like, don't underestimate this decision. Oh no, I've relied on that decision many times already. <laughs> and I won this other case based on Bhavna Muhammad. Bhavna Muhammad went back to the IED. CBSA, the huge officer does like five, 10 minutes submissions. He's like, look, you know what? Obviously, these are the concerns. It's a big disparity, and he stops. Right, so you can you can see that the CBS is there, but not really. There. Not really. He's an officer, great We're dialing guy. it in. Right, he's dialing it back. He's like, "All right, Raj, I will go on. I explain everything." Refusal. <gasps> no. Refusal for Bhavna Muhammad because Ferrari. He's like, you right. know what? Okay, well, really, I, I don't sorry. understand this moral debt uh, uh -huh. line that. You know, is the moral debt for a frontline long-term care facility worker different than the moral debt owed to, 
you know, janitors at uh, schools or school teachers, you know, I just don't get it. Right. And I'm like, you don't need to get it. right? <laughs> you don't need to understand member Ferrari. You just need to read Justice Emmett's decision oh, and apply goodness. it in a very logical way. So he refuses. I'm back at the federal court and I just got a production order. So I, I'm assuming I'm going to get leave. Uh, you know, a journalist had reached out to me on this case a little while ago. And I'm like, wait till they find out that somehow, even after that decision by Justice Samuel, which is as close to a direction as you yeah, can Yeah, for sure. And the CBS officer dialing it back, right? Because the first CBS officer was, you know, me and her don't get along. And we have a big issue for many, many years. But this officer, we've been dealing with each other for 20 years and yeah. he dialed it back he did five ten minutes of whatever questioning five ten minutes of subs and i even said i'm like clearly you can tell from the officers you know the respondent's position that he's not really opposed to granting yeah, relief. For sure. i don't know what happened and ferrari is a good draw like i had a good draw the first time too so i don't know what's happening i don't know what's happening i don't know why i'm getting sticking at on bhavna muhammad but I will get this. Done. <laughs> oh third, my goodness! Yeah, third time going. I will get this done. You know, inshallah, I win at the inshallah. Party. Yeah, and honestly. But anyway, wow. I don't want to fill, fill you guys up because that was a year ago, and we were. I, I don't know. I'm what was the underlying IAD about again? Oh, it's a residency obligation. Yeah, residency obligation. She was in yeah. the U.S. She thought she'd be sponsored by her husband. She stayed there on legal advice, regularization through that process, and. It didn't work out and and we were able to demonstrate right so she her family's here she came here initially as an initial uh, international student she studied nursing here she went you know to the u.s she came back she she's you know obviously her family's still here so um yeah i i i don't i don't know what to say is a residency residency and that too with yeah. a you know on-point decision that had helped other so the decision that I used, that decision, federal court decision, Bhavna Muhammad, I used on an IED for a misrep. And obviously, misrep is usually more challenging than a residency. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, right. So anyway, I don't know. Maybe interesting. This is this is the this is the this is the exciting thing about litigation. You can never quite tell. No, no. But it, it I, I was hopeful. I thought. Oh, because I'd use this case to succeed on other cases. Yeah, so me too. Many times. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, you'll have to update us. Yeah, in annual. Uh... <laughs> oh my God! Let's hope Next not. <laughs> oh my God! January twenty twenty four. We should have Bob Muhammad as a guest. <laughs> she's, a um, lovely, she's a lovely person. I have no doubt. Next question is super specific. I don't. And like, and almost just reads like legal, uh, just someone wanting legal advice. But whether a C10 work permit, which is a significant benefit work permit, can be claimed for express entry? Answer is yes. Not sure we need to spend any more time on, yeah. on it. I don't know if there is like uh, something behind that question. Most yeah. most legal work in Canada can be utilized, right? Most yeah. full time work in Canada can be utilized. You don't get self employment for CEC, but it can, you know. Yeah, you need to have right. one year work experience though on that permit, right? I'll, can... I'll send you. I'll send you a case because the client just contacted me earlier today as well. Uh, 
self-employment for CC, there's, there is a way around that, but I'll, I'll send you my. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think that's enough on that one though. I think that's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, how would immigration be different if applicants were given GCMS notes instead of refusal letters by IRCC? Well, it would, it would cut down on the ATIP uh, backlog. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, I don't know if that would mean there would probably be a lot. Well, I don't know a lot fewer. There would probably be fewer uh, leave applications filed and withdrawn. Mm-hmm. So I think the DOJ would like that because I think people sure. are filing leave applications and then withdrawing after they receive rule nine reasons, which is annoying. Or there'd be a lot more JRs because a lot more people would see what they view as unreasonable. How outrageous results. the decision was. Yeah. 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 I think it's, that's basically look, the answer. But I still think that like it would make for a more like, I just don't understand why even just the contents of the officer's notes aren't just copy pasted. I understand they're ugly, but at the same time, the idea that somebody has to go that extra step to get the substantive decision rather than that well, that I, silly I think, checklist. You know, public policy is that transparency should be encouraged in matters of, you know, affairs of the state and the individual. So from that point of view, we should encourage it. I agree. They'll cut down on ATIP requests. They'll cut down on JRs as well, I think, just that are done just to get the Rule 9. Um, you know, again, there's there's sort of consequences. Like, if you get those reasons, let's say for an agency, now your your timelines for JR are going to be truncated. Mm, so just, yeah. again, like, like we said at the beginning of this uh, discussion is that there's many consequences anytime you change something in immigration there's going to be primary secondary tertiary consequences so they start giving us those gcms then we're going to start pulling the trigger on obviously agencies um pros perhaps i mean you know the, the list goes on yeah i would live with that yeah i think it'd be a uh, worthwhile some, trade-off well yeah, so, sure. some yeah that's that being said some of the clients it's you know finances at issues sometimes yeah for sure you know sometimes it comes in handy every now and then just to have a, a you know some breathing room but uh, yeah yeah for sure and then the last question is what we were talking about briefly when we started which was that uh you know there's been a trend of soon to be retired or retired lawyers on the podcast who've talked about how practicing immigration law is less fun than it used to be. Um, and I've heard one person from the Department of Justice say similar. And do you think uh, that that is the case? How long have you been practicing, Raj? When were you called? Or when did you start doing immigration? 2022, uh, 2002, I was called, 2003 in Alberta. I was, uh, IRB, I was a hearings officer in 2002. Hmm. So it's been 20 years, more or less, in immigration. Um, I, I think, look, I think we were talking about it. It's it's the mileage, not the not the age, right? It's not the age, it's the mileage. So, you know, <laughs> there, there's certain, the practice of law is a grind, Um these things are challenging. They weigh on you. I mean, there's only so many refugee hearings and and traumatic incidents that you can review yourself as counsel. Um, there's emotionally, you know, you, you got to be a psychologist. You got to be a counselor. You got to be a social worker. Sometimes at, at times it's a very challenging profession. So sometimes it's a mileage issue. Sometimes 
you know, you've, you've been there, you've done it, and you've exhausted sort of, let's say, your insight at it. You, you may be doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, you know, DOJ counsel, I mean, I can do their argument, right? I mean, there's nothing to most of those arguments. The decision is reasonable. The officer looked at everything. The officer doesn't have to write everything down in his reasons um, and blah, 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 right? I mean, so, but you have to find meaning in your own practice. You have to find that way to, you know, so I've added teaching to my sort of repertoire, writing this book, mm-hmm. you know, teaching, um, being at the university. I think you just, you add to it, right? And and it, it's up to you whether, but it is a grind. There's no doubt about it. It's very challenging and it does take its toll and you have to fill your, fill your cup from time to time, right? Before you fill the cups of others. On the solicitor side, do you think the increased focus on bouncing applications change the practice? I think continuous change is challenging. I think yeah. that you know when when I started, where I I would know the 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 forms, I would know the question numbers. I and and now at this point, I obviously have a staff and I have assistants and and they're dealing with the portals. It's to the point where I'm not sure whether I could log into my own portal without assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the continuous one, one challenge in immigration is the continuous change. We don't get a respite every week, every month, there's something new. Um, and so that is also challenging in this area of law, you know, dare I say it, I mean, you know, if you practice wills in the States, it's entirely possible that, uh, you won't have those sort of sudden shocks that we get seemingly every six months or a year. And and certainly the pandemic has increased the frequency of change and the challenges that immigration practitioners have. I think that COVID, the after effects of the pandemic is going to be uh, a lot of immigration lawyers that are thinking about retiring, uh, probably moved that up a bit um, and and gone maybe to a less, you know, part-time practice as well. You know, we can, you can probably run a practice out of your house at this point and decrease those expenses. And so that might be interesting, but yeah, it's the legal profession is challenging generally and immigration practice, particularly the last few years have been exceedingly challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we see sometimes these waves where some of the seasoned practitioners are going to the board, they're going to the bench, you know, just the wear and tear occurring, uh, you know, that learning curve is pretty intense and it's never relenting. Uh, Sometimes uh, I find now in consultations, clients are saying, well, what about this program that I read about in the newspaper? What about this policy? What about that? It's very, very challenging to stay on top of all of these new developments all the time. And so, uh, you know, I think in a lot of different areas, I imagine you get to the point of being like, okay, I've got this covered. And of course you need to continue up your continuing professional development. But uh, I find that the pace of change has just been quite unrelenting. Um, but I think that one of the things that you've said that um, that has really been very true for me is the degree to which there is so much breadth in the immigration practice. So, you know, I, you know, I have changed so that my practice is very much on like the refugee practice enforcement, you know, um, uh, 
you know, litigation. But at some point when I'm like, I can sort of take my own temperature and be like, I see burnout approaching. I'm going to just take a bunch of spousal applications or I'm going to do a, a few express entry applications. There is that breadth can be excellent to just manage the self-care component of it and just you know, plow through a bunch of straightforward applications and just take a breath and and that sort of thing and just manage that balance. Um, it also makes it practi- practical when you're managing staff and all of that sort of thing to just make sure your profitability is there while still keeping close to your ideals and your principles and that sort of thing. You just need to keep it fresh and alive because uh, because otherwise burnout can be pretty severe and you don't want to you don't want to hit that before your time is up and look there's there's natural stages in life there's there's seasons uh in our in our lifetime as well there's a reason why most people start looking you know experienced practitioners obviously or um start looking towards the the bench at around 50 or so right like so if you look at the federal court you're looking people are applying to the federal court when they hit that sort of mark they've done what they needed to do and they've achieved what they felt that they could achieve and and now they're on to a new challenge so this podcast used to have a co-host who did that <laughs> yes absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely so right so i mean you have those sort of superstars that can start looking at, at that as well I've, i've done this all right I've, I've, i've made my mark such as it is and it's time to move forward and and that's something to be celebrated as well mm. yeah definitely Are those your tabs over there hanging on your filing cabinet, Raj? They're not getting much use these days, are they? No, uh, although I I did get my I got my silks, so I got I got my silks from London. So I went to London with a buddy of mine, so I picked up the silk and yeah, I haven't worn uh, my robes from London yet, but I guess after April. After April, so they're going back to in-person hearings. That shocks me, I got to say. Well, It's for certain you know, types, certain, for certain types, types of JRs. Well, yeah. So if you look at the practice director, Justice Crompton was very clear. He wanted in person last year, right? Um, and if you recall, like you know, lawyers, especially the younger variety, were apparently running these things far too casually. And he was about to make people gown up, robe hmm. up for the Zoom hearing. So wow. yeah, I know, heard someone showed up in like a T-shirt. Yeah. Well, you know, for the Bhavna Muhammad, I believe my uh, colleague had some sort of strange headgear. Um, I, I don't know exactly. Well, the big question I remember when they switched to uh, was people were like, okay, when the judge appears on the Zoom screen, is counsel supposed to stand up? Yeah. Like we do in person. But if you stand up, then really all you're doing is giving is like the judge a shot of your crotch. The abdomen. So yeah. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah, what's going to happen now is... Uh, it's going to be i think trv applications outside jrs of applications outside canada will remain on remote unless okay. requested otherwise and then irb basically is in person and that makes sense as well okay. that's like that's a good compromise i i ran that jr in front of justice emma that was in hawaii and that was great <laughs> that's great amazing feeling. that's yeah. amazing yeah do you miss it actually being in the open courtroom I I do a little bit. You know, I think in litigation it it your physical presence matters. I mean, a yeah. lot of your um didn't stop uh, you from you quoting Elizabethan English in uh, your the Bhavna Muhammad. No, I, you know Zoom I I've taught on this on this. I think it's just as good. I I think that uh, the technology is is there now 
And yeah. that's not an issue. But, you know, I think in person and walking over to that courtroom and, and putting your bag up on the desk. I mean, yeah. our, this is a, our, our profession is one of tradition. Yeah, for sure. It does yeah. make a difference. You I miss that. You put bag up and you open it up and you take out your legal pad, yellow legal pad and you put on yeah. your you put on the whole gear and then it, yeah. it really is a transformation because you are now an officer of the court. You are now going to deal <laughs> with I, these rights. Right? Bring back the wigs. Yeah. yeah. I have to share an anecdote, which is that Dennis decided, Dennis McRae decided to finally part with his gowns and with his old 20-year-old, I'm sure it's not a 20-year-old, it's probably more like a 50-year-old briefcase. <laughs> and we opened it up and the whiff that came out <laughs> that was not one that you wish to share with others. So, uh, but again, I understand that the nostalgia that comes with it when it's your own bag and your own gear inside of it. And I, I do have a bit of that as well. So the nostalgic yeah. whiff of Dennis McRae. That could be an interesting place to end the podcast. <laughs> yes. Like bats fly out. You forgot the old like, uh, you open it, you like left the in smell, there. Like some tomb opening. <laughs> exactly. Years. The fear from the last hearing when you got yeah. shot down. Yeah, it's oh still stuck God. in there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I think All that's right, a good note to end it on. Yeah, as always. Yeah. <laughs> we'll learn if Dennis still listens everyone. to the podcast. I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs>